So, uh, welcome to Love Heals Cancer and Zenonco.io. I'm Astha from Zenonco.io. This is our cancer healing journey talk where we invite speakers who have gone through cancer, maybe as a patient, caregiver or survivor. Uh, these CAJs are very close to our hearts because, uh, you know, many patients tell us that uh, when we listen to other people's journey, it inspires them. It uh, helps them boost their confidence and it gives them hope that uh, if, if others have been able to, you know, successfully beat the disease, then why can't they? So, you know, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us today for our uh, CHJ talks. So, uh, can you introduce yourself and tell us how your journey began? Sure. So, my name is Megan Claire Chase. And yes, I have that whole double first name, Megan Claire, but I am known in the cancer space as Warrior Megzi. Um, and um, I was diagnosed. I, I still remember the cancer call, quite frankly, on um, September 14, 2015, but it took over two years for my doctors to believe uh, that something was wrong. I was consistently dismissed. Um, I had a lot, I presented a lot of symptoms that were now, in hindsight, as I, as I look back at it, that were not common um, because all they're thinking of is how it looks on white women. And I had vastly different symptoms. I knew something was wrong. I just didn't know what, because I didn't feel anything yet in uh, my breast because I had breast cancer. And it wasn't until I felt something is when all of a sudden all this action took place. But I wasn't even old enough to get a mammogram because I was diagnosed under 40. But um there was a slight caveat to that because my mother is an ovarian cancer survivor. So I always knew I would get cancer. I know that sounds like really pessimistic, but um, it looked like I was on the road to get ovarian or cervical because that's where I was having all the issues. And so I was literally, I've been monitored since I was like 18 because of all these issues. So um, the fact that it, uh, so I was able to get a mammogram at 35 and um, because now the science says that there is a link between breast and ovarian. Um, and so insurance paid for me to have one, you know, before I was 40. Well, they were like, hey, you're clear. Come back when you're 40. And I was like, okay, that's good. But they never told me that I had dense breasts. They didn't tell me what that meant. I was just like, okay, you said I'm clear. Uh, I'll see you, you know, in uh, five years. And um, then... It was literally two months after uh, my 39th birthday. So I'm still saying I was 38. Um, but I get the diagnosis that I have stage 2A invasive lobular breast cancer. And I remember I was at work when I got the cancer call. I used to work in radio and I'm in my cubicle. I was just listening to a, a commercial and I was timing it. So I'm always aware of like the time. And, you know, when your phone rings, you're like, I don't know who that is. I'm not going to answer that. I'll just let it get a voicemail because I had had my biopsy like very late, like at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. And then here it is Monday. But they had told me, oh, you probably won't hear anything until maybe the end of day Tuesday or Wednesday. So I was not expecting anything 
on Monday. Um, and the call, I still remember the time at 3.05 p.m. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. So, um, so it rang at 3.05 p.m. Eastern. And I was like, mm, you know, that gut feeling of like, just answer the phone. So I answered it. And it was my uh, doctor. And I said, wait, wait. So I like ran down the hall uh, to a conference room. And I'm a dramatic person. I have a theater background. So, you know, every, everything's very big in my world. Um, and everyone's like, what are you doing? Because professionally, like in my work, I go by MC for short, since so many people cannot seem to handle calling me Megan Claire. I'm like, I don't think it's a hard name to say, but whatever. Um, they're like, MC, where are you going? I was like, in a minute. Because I didn't tell anyone at work, you know, that all this stuff is happening. And when she told me invasive lobular, I had never even heard of that before because, and that's when it really hit me that this whole breast cancer awareness does not make you aware. They do not talk specifically about all the different subtypes uh, at all. And so when she told me this, like I immediately started to like get hysterical, but she like snapped me back because she, like her voice was like, Megan Claire, I need you to get a pen and paper and take some notes right now. And that just like snapped me back. And I was like, okay. So I ran again and everyone's like, MC, what are you doing? I was like, eh. and I ran back and she had already talked with my uh, primary care provider. Um, I So literally I get diagnosed on a Monday. I am meeting with um, my oncologist uh, that Wednesday. I'm meeting with the um, breast cancer surgeon that Thursday. And then I'm meeting with the plastic surgeon that Friday, like all in the same week. And, and I was thinking to myself, why do I need a plastic surgeon? Like nothing was computing. Like I, I just couldn't process what was happening because it was all so fast. And then um, because I had to get chemo before surgery, because what was happening is my tumor was growing rapidly like it took 10 years apparently that sucker's been in me for about like it said eight to ten years slowly growing and it was missed on that um mammogram and as i started to research what lobular meant first of all um it's rare only about 10 to 15 percent of women get that cancer but then for a black woman to get that cancer, it is like around like, I think 3%. So it's like, like really rare <laughs> for black women to, to get this type of cancer. And I found out that the reason why it was missed is because lobular is really hard to see in dense breasts because it looks, it's the same color as healthy tissue. So if it's, I was just getting a preventative mammogram, which doesn't go deep enough. I didn't get like a 3D, you know, diagnostic one. Um, so that's why it was missed, you know. So like all of this stuff is just starting to like, you know, make sense to me of the two and a half years of me feeling horrible. I gained all this weight. I had these tiny green bruises on my lower left leg, which was like, I come from a cancerous family. So I'm like, oh my God, it's gotta be leukemia. But they, I kept getting all these tests and they were coming back normal, but I knew something wasn't right. And when I gained all this weight, I used to be very fit. I mean, like, cause I grew up studying ballet and musical theater. Like I was always a very fit, like strong and slim person, but fit, you know? And with this weight gain, they were just saying, oh, you just need to eat better and, and exercise. And I was just like, 
constantly dismissed. Um, and so when uh, I when they told me I had to have 16 rounds of chemo, again, I got that call at work. I was like, what is it about them calling at work? Like, can we like say, can I like come to you? You know, because I actually did pass out at work because just the thought of chemo, like I had someone like a coworker had to like drive me home because I just got like full on, like after I like woke up from fainting, I just got like hysterical because I am single no children. Um, my mother, um, she's an ovarian cancer survivor, but she now has a rare blood cancer. So we're going to chemo at the same time, which is a very weird mother daughter bonding. Very weird. Um, don't recommend it. Um, so, but that was really, I mean, I was just like, how am I going to work? Well, going through chemo, because at that time I had really sucky insurance. Um, and it's not like I was making a ton of money, you know, so like, my, I was just like, how am I going to afford all of this? And I mean, I was very panicked. And so I, I forced myself to work and, and I'm still resentful to this day that I didn't have the option of just focusing on trying to get through my, my treatments and surgeries and rest. Instead, I was like, I got to like work up into, to like the, you know, absolute max I can because due to a technicality with my stupid insurance, I did not qualify for short-term disability because I got diagnosed after the window of like the renewal where you can like update your um, your insurance uh, coverage that you want. Because I never thought, I was like, I don't need short-term disability or long-term disability because I was so healthy. Um, you know, and so I was, I was really resentful, um, about that for sure. But I also like my tumor was growing rapidly. And so they were like, this is why we need to throw all the chemo at you because it's growing aggressively. Thank God it didn't get into my lymph nodes yet. So that's what they were trying to prevent. Um, so they, they were like, we need to first contain it and then shrink it as much as possible so when it's time for surgery, we can get clear margins and try and get all of it out. And I was like, okay, um, chemo, I am still suffering from the effects of chemo six years later. Um, I got the mother load of side effects, like all at once. Um, and I was very open with my experience because at that time, I didn't know anyone else my age who had cancer or who was going through treatment. Um, I was like, where do you go for support? Uh, but then I was so exhausted. I was like, who can, who can get support in the middle of active treatment? Like I was just trying to like stay alive. And I honestly um, thought to myself, I think the chemo is going to kill me, not the cancer. Like it was just so toxic. You know, I mean, I got my port, like here's my, my port scar, you know, um, and that was weird getting back because I had to have all these tests and, and then the port surgery before I could even get on chemo. And, um, but in Atlanta, and I know this isn't every place, but there was a class that my social worker um, signed me up for called chemoflage. And so it was there. So this is like, you know, a couple of, really about three weeks later. So at that time I was like, who do I talk to? What do I do? So I go to this chemo flash class. Isn't that like clever chemo flash? Um, 
but this older woman uh, her name is cookie um cookie argonaut she had started this because it's like how can you prepare yourself for chemo if you've never had it and you don't know what to expect at all aside from losing your hair you know like that's all that's ever talked about is the hair on your head no one ever talks about your eyebrows your lashes everywhere all the hair goes and the type of chemo that i was getting i was told straight up by my oncologist that there's no way i can prevent myself from losing my hair um because one of the chemos the the scientific name is um uh, adrian myerson but it's known worldwide as the red devil because it's literally in a it's red the on the cover of it literally is like the skull and crossbones i was like you're putting this poison in me like it's literally saying poison um but I, I kept my humor as you can tell i'm a little humorous i kept my humor the whole time but like with the chemo i mean i had the mouth sores um everything tasted like metal so i had to start using plastic uh utensils i couldn't use my silverware i got so weak um i was neutropenic i had to um I also, uh, when my hair, so I had buzzed my hair first because I thought to myself, and this is something I learned in the chemo flash class was go ahead and buzz your hair now. Cause I used to have very thick hair that was down to here straight. This is all post, like my hair is permanently changed to like a chia pet. It's all these curls. Never had curly hair. No one in my family has curly hair anyway. Um, and so it was through that class that I really understood, okay, I have to stay hydrated. Like, I mean, like insanely hydrated. Like it was, you know, learning how to even tie a scarf on my head. Cause I never worn scarves on my head. Um, but it was really helpful to go through that class, just saying like this, this may or may not happen to you, but here's some information in case it does like know that that is quote unquote normal. Um, you know, but like, who thinks about losing your nose hairs? Like, I'm so glad that I went to that class because I lost my nose hairs. And so many people don't think about that when you're getting chemo. And um, I have a cat. Uh, he may or may not make an appearance on this right now. His name is Nathan Edgar. Like, I'm allergic to cats, but over the years, I've gotten used to his dander. I had to get used to his dander all over again because I had no nose hairs. Um, it was, it was hard. It was really, it was hard. It was really hard. And then I'm working full-time also and chemo brain was, it was so debilitating. I'll never forget the first time I realized, oh my God, this is like scary. Um, cause chemo brain, it sounds, it sounds cute, you know? No, it is debilitating. Like some people it's mild for some it's horrific. Like I remember, um, I was at Target. I was shopping again by myself because I mean I'm, I'm by myself, and I go home. I always carry a purse. I'm a very much a girly girl, and I automatically always reach over to grab my purse. And I went to reach over, my purse is not there, and I'm just like, "Oh my god! Oh my god!" No memory. Like that's what it is. Like with chemo brain, it's almost like a form of dementia. It's like no memory at all like at all. And I was just like, oh my God, do I even have a purse? Like, I was just like, 
I need to go back to that Target. And thank goodness I literally lived like down the street from it. So it was like a real quick. But imagine if I lived like 30 minutes, an hour away from there. It, there was my purse in the cart, in the parking lot. Like it is a miracle. No one stole it. Like all of my cards were like everything was in there. And I was just like, and that's when I realized, oh my God, this is like serious. Like, like why did my oncologist like tell me how debilitating and how scary this would be? Because she was like, oh, you may get a little chemo brain, a little forgetful. I was like, that's not forgetful. It's literally no memory of doing it. And it's very strange. And so I began to have difficulty at work and I finally had to like stop uh, working for a little bit because um, I was like, I can't, all the things that used to come naturally, you know, and working in media was very high stress, very fast paced. And I, I couldn't remember how to like do the simple things, let alone the complicated stuff. And so um, there was a lot of generosity in my department and with my friends. Um, and so I was able to like, but it was towards the end. So I still didn't like give myself enough rest, which it, it still guts me. And, um, but then with the Taxol, uh, that particular chemo, that's the one I'm still dealing with like major side effects from because I was told I might get chemo induced peripheral neuropathy in my, um, hands and feet but but again i was told it might happen around your eighth to ten one i had to get 12 and that one was every week um the other one the ac was um two weeks on two weeks off i felt literally a current running through my body it, it, that's the best way i can describe what this felt like a current running through my body where the nerves just died like through my whole body and it happened in the first treatment in the first 15 minutes of the treatment. And I, I started screaming in the infusion room. I'm like, what is happening? Oh my God. And there was no way for them because it was so sudden and unexpected because they were thinking, oh, I might get a little tingling or numbness by the eighth one, not the first one in the first 15 minutes. And that's when I started to realize and doing research, I was like, there's no test to see who would be more susceptible to neuropathy. Like there's like, I know that there's research out about it, but there's nothing. And so, and that's what's so scary about chemo is you do not know how your body is going to react because every body is different. And so that was really traumatic for me because I, I got so weak that I was using a cane. I kept falling. Um, I mean, it was, that was a really hard time. Like it got to the point by the end of my treatment, I had to be wheeled out in a wheelchair. I was so weak. And um, then we have the surgery and I, I still have the picture of myself like the day of my surgery. And um, my plastic surgeon, um, first of all, he was a male and normally I'm all about like female doctors. So I, I thought, but he was so, his bed manner was so beautiful and just compassionate. And more importantly, he was the top plastic surgeon for breast cancer patients under 40 in Atlanta. So like I was, I mean, I, I got like the dream team and my breast cancer surgeon is amazing. And they actually have, have 
been working together at that time for about 20 years. So they had a really good relationship. So they, what was so great, they gave me all the information of like, here's what we recommend your surgery be, but we're going to give you all the information. So you make the choice because it is your choice, what you want to do. And so my whole life, you know, with breast cancer, you always hear of women having the double mastectomy, you know, get them, take them away. And then when they started giving me more of the information and then I did my own research, I was like, well, I feel a lumpectomy is best for me. And they explained it. They were like, look, there are ways now, like back then that was like the only option, but now there are ways to conserve the breast. And because of my pathology, my genetic counseling, I haven't even gotten to that yet, my genetic counseling, um, and then my um, type of tumor, where it was located, like all, there were a lot of factors involved. My age, you know, all of this stuff was in, involved in making that decision. So I, I felt it was right to get a lumpectomy and then get a reduction on the right side and then reconstruction. And um, so when I finally, but before my surgery, I was so weak, like I was in a wheelchair, I had to get a blood transfusion. Now, I don't know why, like to this day, I'm still like so thrilled about this blood transfusion because I thought I was just boring, regular typo. I, I thought that my whole life, right? I was like, oh, what a boy. I mean, I mean, obviously that's good, you know, but just the universal type of, no, I am not. I am B positive. And for some reason, when they told me this, I got so like excited because I was a cheerleader in college. So I'm like, go be positive. And they're like, we've never seen anyone get excited finding out their blood type. <laughs> but I thought it was like hilarious, but I was so weak, like, they wanted me to get two bags of blood. And for some reason, I guess, you know, on TV, they 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 look like really small bags. I mean, that sucker was like huge. And when I saw it, I actually got physically ill. And I was like, I can't look at this. Like, so I had, I made them like put it behind me so I would not see it. Um, because I then I got like really grossed out thinking, oh my God, I'm getting someone else's blood in me. And it's a very weird feeling because- they were only able to find one bag of B positive blood and then, oh, so I had to, you know, I was just like, oh my God. And it took about six hours. Like, it's not like it's like that. I mean, it is every few minutes, they have to do it so slowly to see how you react and then taking your blood pressure. I mean, it was just like, oh my God, this took the longest process. So, but then the funny, like, again, I found, I had to keep my humor. So when it was over and I went to um, the restroom, I looked, my whole face is flush red. My eyes are red. And I was thinking of the movie Twilight. And I was like, oh my God, I turned into Bella from Twilight. Like I just start cracking up. I was just like, what, what is this? And, and like my chest was all like red flush. And they didn't tell me that that was going to happen. Um, so I was just like, okay, I wish I had taken a picture of it. I didn't think, you know, I wasn't thinking because I was like, man, I would have liked to have seen that like again. But um it was about 48 hours later that I felt like that. Um, they tell you that you get like this rush of energy. Um, and that did happen, but it took a good 48 hours um, to do that. So that made me strong enough to now have the surgery because they were worried that, you know, I was too weak um, because I was so neutropenic. So we go in, we do the surgery. Um, I mean, I was scared uh, because 
at that time, I, I did finally get a chemo buddy um, through that chemo flash class, but she was already um, three months ahead of me. So she'd already had her surgery and she had a, she had a different type of breast cancer. So she had a double mastectomy. So I didn't know of anyone else who was getting a lumpectomy. I didn't know anyone of color. I didn't, you know, so I was, I was slightly panicked. And I remember, um, you know, my, my plastic surgeon coming in, drawn all over me. And, you know, he was like, okay, I'm going to do here and here, but he's very, he's just so gentle. And then my um, breast cancer surgeon, when it was time to like roll me in, there was all, my favorite like hat for my head was this pink because pink's been my signature color uh, since I was four years old. And thank goodness, I still love the color pink, but I don't wear it as much as I used to just because of all the Pepto pink. But this particular um, pink hat was like my favorite one because it's so cozy and warm and um, I told her, I was like, oh, this is my favorite one. I should probably like leave this. And she goes, no. She said, you keep that on. If that's what makes you comfortable, we'll put the cap over, the surgical cap over it. And I was like, really? She's like, this is about you today. And I was just like, what a beautiful thing to say. You know, like just that little me getting to wear my hat underneath the surgical thing brought down some of the anxiety, just that little bit because she, she saw me as a human you know so we go in um and my mother told me because my mother and she had uh like two of her friends uh with her she said that my um uh, breast cancer surgeon came out with her hands racing and we got it we got it and I was just like and she like hugged my mother and I was like that is so like my breast cancer surgeon um because she because I remember the first time we met her uh, my mother and I were like dying laughing over something. I don't know what it was, but she walked in. She goes, finally, a patient that doesn't act like they're dead. And I like rolled. I was like, oh my God, you are the type of like surgeon I need because I, I'm i humorous, but I'm also like, I understand what's going on. And, but that I had complications. So everything that my doctors realized that everything about me that they think, oh, this will be typical. I would have like the rare side effect, or I would have like more complications that shouldn't be happening. And I think it's because, um, forgot to say this before, but I was born premature three months early, actually. Um, and so I've always had like health issues, but, and always a delicate immune system, but I was also very active. So I always looked and I felt physically strong. And so I think it's because being born premature, I'm just susceptible to like more, more complications, so to speak. So when they, um, when I finally woke up out of the anesthesia, cause here getting a lumpectomy in Atlanta and most places it's an outpatient procedure. And, um, so I wake up, I'm so nauseous. Um, and when I sat up, something happened with one of my tubes and the back, my back was covered in blood. So I'm seeing blood on the sheet and I start freaking out and they're like, oh my God. And they realize that something happened with one of the tubes. Like it wasn't my blood. Like it's not from like the stitches, but I was like, I was so hysterical. And then I like, um, 
I, and then they couldn't get the pain level down because first I like ran, they had to help me get to the, the restroom because I thought I was just going to like lose it all. And they were like, get her there. We will change, <laughs> get her, you know, a new bed. And then they put me back on there. But then the pain was so like, they couldn't get it down, like my pain level down. And they were like, okay, because it already been three hours at this point. They're like, if we can't get it down within like the next, you know, half hour, we're going to have to admit you. Um, and I was just like, and, th and this is what was going on through my mind when they said that, and this is so sad. And this shows the state of insurance and healthcare in the United States. I was like, that'll cost me a fortune. I can't afford that. Like, cause I'm thinking of the hospital bill. I'm like, oh my God, no. So I was just like, like, come on, just, just get it down enough. Because I mean, I would never like let myself go home if it was like uncontrollable, you know? But I was just like, okay, just focus on like, just try and get this down because I do not want to have to pay for a night in the hospital. And that is something that no patient should ever be worried about. Um, yeah, I'm very like, I'm an advocate now. Um, and so finally, you know, get me home and everything. But turns out I'm a mermaid because uh, no one thought that I would need drainage because typically you get drained if you have a mastectomy or double mastectomy. With a lumpectomy, you usually don't have to drain anything. Well, your girl had to get 455 cc's of fluid aspirated. Um, cause I, it was literally making me nauseous and my, it's an inside joke with my mother and I, cause I called my mother. I was like, mother, I was like, I can literally hear the swishing of the fluid that has built up in the left breast. And she, and she was like, oh my God, you really are a mermaid. I was like, I know. Um, but I remember when we went to my plastic surgeon, he was even like, oh my God, like, I didn't think you would get fluid, let alone that much fluid. I mean, it was so when he went to stick this huge needle in on the side and I'm like, well, did you do it? And he goes, yeah. And that's when it hit me. Oh my God. I have no feeling on the outside of my breast. Even to this day, I have no feeling. And I was like, well, thank goodness. Cause that needle was huge. Um, so like having to do that, I actually have a picture of him like doing that. And I was just like, that's a lot of fluid. Like this. And even he was like, that's a lot of fluid. Um, so then finally get that out. Then I end up getting cellulitis because um, I got feverish, got a huge rash. And I was like, what is happening? Like all of these you know, stupid complications that typically do not happen with a lumpectomy. So of course it had to happen for me. Um, so then we get to that. Then I'm told I need 33 rounds of radiation. But everyone kept telling me, oh, radiation's a breeze to get through. Don't worry about it. You know, chemo was the worst. I'm like, okay. And with radiation, you have to go in every single day for whatever number, um, you know, of radiation treatments you need. And I was like, dang, 30. I was like, I was like, that's a lot. Um, but the radiation plus a lumpectomy is the equivalent of a mastectomy. And I think that's what a lot of women um, still don't understand, you know, that like that together kills any remaining cancer cells. That's why you get it. And then the number of it is based on, again, what your cancer type was, the size of what they had to remove. So my um, radiation oncologist, they didn't want to leave anything like, you know, 
um, any possible microscopic uh, cancer cells. So I was like, okay, yeah. well, radiation was just as difficult to get through and traumatic for me as chemo because I was told you might burn a little or you might get a little red. It might look like a sunburn or something, right? Mm -hmm. I burn my, I now know what a burn patient feels like because my skin burned off. Like, like it was like crispy bacon, like burned bacon. And the pain was so horrific. Like I still have burn scars right here. Um, and I'm just like, I, I actually had a full on meltdown in the hall and I was like, I can't continue. I think I was on my, um, my 20th at this point is when the burns, like it was so bad. And I was every day. I was doing the type of um, cream and lotions that they had told me to do. And I'm like, why am I burning so badly? I mean, I was, I was really upset and I got so livid when that radiation oncologist told me, she goes, Oh, I've seen worse. And I said, well, I, I said, well, have you ever had your skin burn off? And she just kind of looked at me and I said, well, then you may have seen worse, but I have never felt worse. I was so livid at how just dismissive she was of what I was experiencing. And the back of me had a huge um, burn this big on the backs and it burned up my skin up here. And I was like, what? I you said it was just supposed to be here because it only takes like three minutes for the radiation. It takes longer to get set up on it than the actual treatment and i was just like what what are all these burns and i didn't even know about the one in the back until i was getting occupational therapy because i was having difficulty moving uh with movement my range of movement and um the the therapist goes oh my god you does that hurt you have a burn on the back on your back and i was like wait what what because i never thought to look on the back and there it was huge as day i have pictures of that too because i was like i said can you take a picture of this i'm horrified so all of this stuff and then by the end of that 33 because i got like three boosters too which is like a extra dose i was so exhausted no not exhausted fatigued on top of like still trying to recover from chemo trying to recover from all these surgeries so then I know you would think, okay, you're done now, right? No. <laughs> we discover that I am intolerant of the post-treatment medications that, you know, like the tamoxifen or whatever that they want to put you on um, because my cancer was like 100% estrogen positive and 98% progesterone. So I cannot have estrogen. And keep in mind too, I, I have lost my fertility. Um, and when we tried me on tamoxifen, I had the rare side effects. It ashes all over my arms and my chest and my neck. And it felt like fire ants. And that's a rare side effect aside from debilitating joints. And so when they realized, okay, um, this is crazy. And I ultimately divorced my active treatment doctor and everyone's like, you did. And I told her to her face. I said, I'm divorcing you. I said, thank you for getting me to this point. You've been great. Oh, just get off the tamoxifen for two weeks and then get back on it. And I was like, what part of no? I can't be on this for 10 years. Like I was really mad. And so I went somewhere else for a second opinion. And this time it was a male uh, oncologist. He's so great, but he's retired now. But he was like, okay, 
we need to think outside the box for you. We're going to try Lupron injections for you. And he hated to do that because he, he really was like, you're so young and you, you know, I hate to do this to you. And I was like, well, at this point, I can't go through all this again. So just do what you need to do. So I didn't think about the grieving or the emotional impact that would have. I was like, just get her done. Well, then it turned out I had the same like reactions with the Lupron injections as I did with tamoxifen. And then we had tried uh, another one called a Vista. And I was just like, oh my God. So at this point, he reaches out to my gynecologist. They talk. And because I was already having those issues with my ovaries and my cervix, they were like, in order, you know, because I seem to be a really high risk of getting ovarian, like legit. And they said to negate you getting ovarian, cervical, or uterine, um, we need to just take everything out, have a hysterectomy and an oophorectomy. And I remember he cried and that, that was really lovely. Both he and my gynecologist actually got very emotional because they don't want to do that to a, a woman who has never had a kid. And, um, but I was just, again, I was not thinking the emotional impact of this. I was like, well, do what you need to do. Cause I'm thinking, oh God, cancer's probably already growing back in me. Just like, get it out. So they do that. But I, that was like a year later after my original uh, surgeries, it was too much for my body. I did not heal. I wasn't healed from just the cancer stuff. And I didn't realize how massive a surgery this was because they did it robotically. And so I only have like these teeny tiny, like five little scars you know, across my stomach, but it turned out to be a very massive <laughs> surgery. And I, I guess I couldn't, you know, your mind can only handle so much. And I, I didn't really fully comprehend all that was being taken out. And that's a lot of room that your insides have to like adjust for. And it was after that, where I started getting this back pain because I had lost all the chemo weight. I was starting to, I could see my shape again. I was getting like fit. Then I get this back pain and then I start feeling all this burning and then someone touched me, it would hurt or sometimes loud music would cause pain. I'm like, what is this? So great. Now I have fibromyalgia. I was like, great. So on top of the chemo induced peripheral neurop neuropathy, I now have chemo induced fibromyalgia um, because what I've been told about like with fibromyalgia and I watched a great documentary called Unrest on uh, Netflix and it makes sense because how I came into the world so traumatically being born three months early, my mother was hemorrhaging to death. Um, you know, like it makes sense that I probably would have gotten fibromyalgia at a later age, but because of, it takes like a trauma, like it might've been dormant and then it takes another trauma to like, you know, click that switch on and that's what happened. But then this back pain, it was, it's in, been in a very specific space I kept like, I was like, y'all, I said, this is different from my other pains. I said, this is constant. And it's, I was like, do I have like adhesions? Like what's going on? I was like, oh, you're still just healing. Just give it time. Again, I'm dismissed. Well, can I just tell you that literally uh, two weeks ago, it has taken five years to get to what happened two weeks ago to finally get a nerve ablation because it turned out I legit had something wrong all this time. Doctors wouldn't believe me. It's only been within since last November where I had to find a doctor of color. And it's really hard to find specialists of color 
who, you know, who are like spine uh, experts and uh, fibromyalgia experts, you know, to actually be believed. And that, that really angers me. So the uh, systemic racism within healthcare is alive and well. And it was finally getting an Asian American uh, doctor. And then at that, it, the insurance I had at that time, I was having to pay like $800 up front. And, I, and insurance requires you to get two of these like spinal injections to see if it'll work before they will approve a nerve ablation, which is literally burning of the nerves in the back. And then I ended up changing jobs. So I got a different insurance that where I was going before, don't they didn't take that insurance. I was just like, oh my God. So I have to do this process all over again. All over again. So finally we did it. I have really good insurance, I will say, for this. Um, and for the first time ever, instead of my pain level being like a 14 every day for the past five years, it's a three. Yeah. So um, I had a question. Uh, that did you try any alternative or complementary therapies apart from the medical one? So, no, I, I did not. Because when I look at the science um, and knowing that I need to suppress the estrogen, um, I was like, I don't think that would work. But I did do it for um the neuropathy because the medications nothing worked and it finally got to a point because i i was a fall risk i was falling all the time i remember falling outside my apartment and no one was around i fell down steps i had like a grade three sprained ankle that i drove myself to the emergency room you know like and so i realized at that point i was like so, this is the medications are not working. There's got to be something else. So um, believe it or not, on Instagram, I mean, they legit are watching you, right? I saw an ad about um, a chiropractor. I know you would never think chiropractor with neuropathy, really, or chemo-induced neuropathy. But he said that there's like a um, thing called rebuilder and shockwave therapy. And I was like, you know what? It's time for me to like explore that. Can I just tell you, it's been a good eight months of this treatment of really stimulations because he is first of all he's Canadian and he was trained in Canada and I think that made a lot of difference because he was trained already in this and he actually understands the difference between chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy versus diabetic neuropathy because I don't have diabetes and so when I talked with him he actually thought I was a researcher and I was like oh good that's like such a high compliment because I'm like asking questions and I'm telling him what I know and um but it turned out it's really about the aside from the nerve damage it's also the lack of blood flow and so he was able to do like thermal imaging and I could literally see where I didn't have any like blood flow and that's why I would have cold flashes instead of hot flashes so all of this was making sense. So that that is some integrative therapy that I've done that I have seen massive results. I mean, it's cost me a fortune because insurance does not cover it. Um, I've had to pay almost uh, four grand of my own money for it. But I, I realized I was like, I, there's only one of me. I have to invest in myself. So I mean, I've had to make a lot of sacrifices for it. 
but it has worked. We'll never get full, uh, you know, the nerves back, a feeling back. But I went from no feeling, like at all, like, I know people were like, how are you driving? I was like, well, I would actually just watch my speedometer because I couldn't feel the gas or the brake. But I was like, I have to drive. You just learn how to do it. You, I mean, like when you're handicapped, when you have a disability, you learn to work with what you got. And now I can actually feel the brakes. I can, I haven't fallen down in about five months. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. So I had one more question. Like what were the major lifestyle changes? Like, did you do any lifestyle changes during and after the treatment? So it's been really hard because my uh, mobility was so limited because of the neuropathy. Like no, everyone kept saying, oh, go to physical therapy for neuropathy. Well, again, it's a money issue. I would have to pay like 50 to 80 bucks per session. And when I started doing that, I was like, I'm not getting any results. I was like, this isn't working. And then with the back pain was so severe, I could not move because every time I would even breathe, I'm getting this back pain and then the fibromyalgia pain. So every time I would move, my brain is getting signals. I'm hurting myself. So it was really, it's, it's been, it's been a very long road. It is only now literally uh, since last week that I can now move. I can walk. Like I can, um, do stretches and know I'm not hurting myself anymore because I don't feel that pain. So it's like, I've got a lot of changing my lifestyle now yeah. that I know that this pain is now two or three, which is so tolerable. I barely feel any pain, but this this treatment that I got the nerve ablation only lasts about a year. So, cause the nerves will regenerate. So I'll have to like do this all over again, which again right. will cost a fortune. And it's, but it's like, now I feel like I can get moving again and try and get strong uh, mm. again. Um, right. We still don't have the fibromyalgia under control because again, I had the rare side effects of those medications as well. I'm just like, why do I have to be so extra? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's really great listening to you, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you told, there is a lot of tension and, you know, you just get so much of mental pressure, you know? So like, how did you manage your emotional well-being you know, during your treatment? Ooh, you know, during active treatment, I mean, there were some, there were some dark days for sure. Um, especially when I would, you know, when I would come home and I'd be by myself and, um, cause I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Like I literally thought I was going to die from the chemo, um, but it did help having her name is Aaron being my chemo buddy. Like every time we would go to chemo because I got chemo. Um, I live more in the city because I'm all about that city life. She's more about the suburbs, um, but we're treated like under the same umbrella of the cancer centers, just in different locations. So she would tell me I'd give her, send her messages when it was time uh, for her chemo treatments. I send, um, she'd send me messages to try and help me get through it. And then, I remember when, um, like 
right after my surgery. And the fact that I kept being called a young adult, like throughout the whole entire time, oh, you're so young, you're a young adult. And I'm like, I'm not a young adult, like 30s. But again, when I started doing research, I was like, oh, shoot, I this, because this is supposed to really affect older women in like their 60s, 70s and 80s. Like there is, and that's when I learned that there's an underrepresented category of young adults and then you add being a woman then you add being a woman of color on top of that there's a lot of barriers so i did research and i was able to find a local young adult cancer group unfortunately they no longer meet but back then in 2016 and 2017 we would all meet for dinner like uh once a month and so i got to meet other people i was like what i didn't know like y'all existed um so that was really helpful because i was I met them when I was going through radiation. Um, so it was really helpful to hear them. Some of them had radiation. We all had different types of cancers too. So just hearing those experiences, I finally got to meet some young guys who were going through uh, different cancers who were under 40. So that that was huge for me. But I still, to this day, I only know if it, it took really until about, three years ago to meet someone else who was single and no children and not able to have children due to their cancer now. No, like I felt very alone and it's been really hard to find uh, support for, for that um, because everyone's like, oh, well just adopt. I'm like, that is such a callous thing to say when someone like my parents divorced when I was really young and I know it takes a village for a child let alone one that like if you have health issues like I did and I would never be selfish like that a child is precious I'm not gonna adopt I'm not I don't have a person I don't have a spouse or a partner or whatever I'm not gonna do that alone and then I don't know like I have a 30 percent risk of uh recurrence or becoming metastatic because with my mother having ovarian cancer and now she's got a rare blood cancer I will not be surprised if I get a totally different type of cancer or become metastatic. So, but now I have found mm -hmm. like online groups there and it makes me sad that there's nothing like in person here local anymore because that group disbanded. Um, but it was great for that time, but it makes me sad that um, I meet all these amazing people online, but I'm actually flying out um, uh, to see one. Um, we've become really great friends. Um, I'm going to New York City uh, next weekend. And then another friend who has metastatic breast cancer, um, I'm going to visit her and like someone else has come to visit me. So it's like, we're making these friendships work right. even though we're all over the, the world. Yeah, that's really great. You know, you should, uh, you know, always, uh, you know, express your feelings. You know, you should uh, have friends and, you know, positivity is the key. So I learned so much from your journey. Yeah. So like, what message would you like to give to cancer patients and uh, cancer caregivers? You know, for, for cancer patients, um, don't allow that toxic positivity to get you down. Like you have every right to be angry, be depressed, be anxious, but like you have to feel all the feels. So when people are telling you, just be positive. No, like what has happened to you is traumatic. And it is like you, 
can no longer trust your body to take care of you. You know what I mean? And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of you feel all the feels and also it is okay to not be okay. It is okay to not feel grateful all the time. It's okay. And to get professional help because cancer is too big to go through alone. You do need some support. Even if it's like, you know, for me, I just had that one person when I was going through chemo, that was enough for me at that time because I didn't have much energy, but it is very important that you, you know, now that we have these resources online to find people and then find professionals. Like I have a therapist who is actually specialized. Now it took some time to find the right fit. So don't like, you know, for, I, I say this to patients, it may be hard to find the right fit, but don't give up because you can. Mine is specialized in AYA cancer and in chronic pain. So he helps me develop coping um, mechanisms for when like I get upset, it actually triggers my pain. So I'm learning more about my nervous system. And, and then I, you know, um, I have a, a psychiatrist to help with me mentally. So it's like, it's okay to not, to, to be angry. Cause that's something that there's not a lot of space for us to, to have and to express without others coming back at us. And for caregivers, cause I'm a caregiver for my mom. I mean, she lives, I mean, we cannot live together. Okay. Um, but um, I still take her, you know, to her appointments and, and that it's hard on me too. And so for caregivers, it's like, it's okay to sometimes be like, God, like I'm upset that I'm having to do this. Cause I've got to like change my schedule. Don't feel guilty. Cause you're going to feel guilty, you know, cause you're like, God, that's my mother or my child or my spouse to make sure that you take some time just for you to like take care of yourself because being a caregiver is very hard. Also, when you're both going through cancer at the same time or another illness at the same time, or you're still dealing with like, you know, the side effects and being in a, a body that's more fatigued and doesn't have the energy that it once had, still trying to do everything, you know, like making, like doing her shopping or saying, hey, can, do you need me to pick up anything for you? Or let me take you here recognizing, wow, that drains me. And then I can't do the stuff for me. So it's like, sometimes you just have to be like, you know, this time, can you find someone from the church to take you or, and, and that's okay to say. So that's my, my message to both patients. And then also for survivors too, that you may develop late-term side effects that might happen like years later. So, and again, like, feel all the feels and it's, it's your right to be that way. But for all patients and survivors, it's your patient right to ask questions. It's your patient right to get the care that you need and demand for that and change doctors. Cause I think with different cultures, you know, where some of us are taught, just do whatever the doctor says, if you don't feel right, because even survivorship, I now have a whole slew of different specialists and I've had to change multiple times because I'm like, you're not listening to me. And I know inherently something is wrong. And then I end up being right, you know, but it took years for that. Um, but to empower yourself and being an advocate doesn't mean doing what I do where I'm in front of people. I sit on panels. I'm a writer. I do a lot. I'm very uh, face fronting, right? Being an advocate doesn't mean just that. Being an advocate could be like, you know what? Can someone pick up dinner for me? Because I am too tired to cook. That's a way of advocating for yourself.
that's really a very good message yeah i just have one last question from you you know it is really nice hearing to you i just have one last question that uh, if you have to sum up your entire journey in a single sentence then what would that be oh my gosh <laughs> yeah um ooh i would say i've stared my mortality in the face but even in this darkness, I rise. Wow. I am a writer. <laughs> that was really so good. Yeah. So it was really very nice listening to you. And thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And, you know, it was really very inspirational. And I'm sure that this would help so many cancer patients, survivors and caregivers out there in their journey. So the way you explained everything so well, you told everything from the beginning to the end. It was really very inspirational. So thank you so much. Oh, well, you know, thank you for reaching out because I know it can feel kind of scary to reach out to people on social media but when I you know read your website and all of that like I, I love helping um you know getting the word out of what it's like to go through cancer mm -hmm. and to help others right. um with the experience so reach out anytime if there's anything else you need let me know definitely yeah so thank you so much once again you're welcome <laughs>